Let's pray. God, thanks for this day and for this time together where we can just dig into your word. Pray you speak to us this morning. Pray you speak through me, Lord, and that you just help me get out of the way and that you'll take my place and that my words will be yours. And we just pray that everybody will hear a message from you this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm excited uh, to be here this morning. I tell you, you tell people that you're going to preach about Revelation and people fill your seats. That's awesome. Revelation is the cousin Eddie of the Bible. It's the most misunderstood and uh, the most neglected book, I think, in all of the Bible. So we're going to be there this morning. You, You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, there's, there's a couple of dangers. Uh, when, when you talk about the book of Revelation, people, people either obsess about the book and they think, oh, you know, this, this prophecy is this and this is this and Donald Trump is this and Barack Obama is this and you know, these Apache helicopters are this and you know, these, these uh, biotic implants are this. And everything's out of the book of Revelation. Then you've got people who just ignore the book. And I, don't, I don't know what this book's talking about. These dragons and these, these trumpets and, and these bowls. This pregnant woman who's dressed with the sun. I don't, I don't know what all that's about. That's John ate some bad food. Some, I don't know. And they just, they just ignore it. Both extremes are wrong. And it's like, why are there these two extremes when it comes to this one book of the Bible? You know, I think on one hand, people just, oh, we, we got to we got to know what happens. we we got to know the end of the story. we got to know how this happens and why this happens and when this happens and what's going to happen to me when this happens. And then on the other hand, some people are just afraid to know. They, they don't want to know what's going to happen when, when it happens. And so a lot, of, a lot of churches ignore it. Revelation is probably one of the least preached books in the Bible. And that's sad because it has a ton to say to us today. And I think popular books have really confused and misled a lot of people who don't know their Bible when it comes to Revelation. Books, books like this. Anybody read these? The, the Left Behind books? There's umpteen of them. I don't, I don't know how many there are now. but um, they've, they've made a lot of money, sold a lot of books, Authors are, are probably good Christian guys, but their works of fiction. Left behind is not the Bible. This is the Bible. This is not the Bible. And when people get their theology, especially about their in, the end times, when people get their end times theology from popular works of fiction instead of the Bible, that's where problems happen. I'm not saying they're not good books. I'm not saying they're not well written. I'm just saying they're not the Bible. See, works of fiction don't interpret the Bible for us. The the Bible interprets the Bible. And the question when it comes to the book of Revelation, the question we all want to know is, how how is Jesus going to come back? When is Jesus going to come back? What's all going to happen before Jesus comes back? But that's the wrong question. Those are the wrong questions. The the right question is this. What's the church supposed to do in the meantime? 
between the ascension of Jesus and Jesus' uh, second coming, what's, what's the church supposed to do? What are we as Christians waiting for the return of Christ supposed to do? A little bit of context for the book of Revelation. Uh, Alan gave a little bit of it. said basically about what I'm going to say. It's written by the Apostle John. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Now, John is uh, exiled. I mean, he got, he, got, he got kicked out of where he was, and he got sent to this island of Patmos. And it is. It's just this island where he is exiled. He's, he's all by himself. And it says he's there. Um, chapter 1, verse 9, says he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means John wasn't able to keep his mouth shut about Jesus. And Rome decided to exile him as a punishment. I mean, they tried boiling him, in, or they tried uh, putting him in... in uh, they tried basically boiling John. That didn't get rid of him. They tried other things. They had to exile him to Patmos, but God is still not done with him there. God is still doing some big things through John, as we will see. And so this is in, in, in the 90s AD. Nobody knows the exact year. It doesn't matter. But there's a whole lot of persecution going on from, from Rome against Christians. And there's a whole lot of Christians getting caught up in all kinds of emperor worship and, and all this other stuff, worshiping other gods. And it's just a hard time to be a Christian. It's a hard time to be part of the church. And it says in here that John is, uh, is worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. So he's, he's having this little worship service. And uh, all of a sudden he hears what sounds like trumpets behind him. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. It says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay. So he, he's, he's, he's worshiping. He, he gets this. Here's this sound. Here's this voice. But it's not just the voice that he hears. Read on. It says, I turned around to see the, um, the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Wow. How, how many of you picture Jesus like that? Now, one thing you've got to realize when you read the book of Revelation. John, I don't remember who said this. Some, some, some scholar preacher said this. He said, John doesn't say what he means he means what he means he doesn't say what he means he means what he means a lot of times the question is you know is this is this literal is this figurative how are we supposed to how are we supposed to take this well john means what he means and you read this you uh, you will not be able to understand um, the letter of revelation if you do not know your old testament there is the book of revelation has about 500 references uh, to the Old Testament uh, in its chapters, which is crazy. 
In like 400 and some verses, there's 500 and some references to your Old Testament. And a lot of times, we try to, we try to divorce Revelation from its context. And when you, when you divorce Scripture from any context, you can make it say whatever you want. For example, there's a passage in Matthew where, uh, where Jesus is talking. And he says, uh, Matthew 18. And you know, there's that popular verse that says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am with them. A lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, it's just talking about church attendance. You know, we've got three people, we can have a worship service because Jesus is here with them. That passage has absolutely nothing to do with worship attendance. That passage is talking all about church discipline. You, know, you sh- should read through that sometime. Or, or passages like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. You know how many memes there are? of somebody about ready to jump off of a cliff or go in a boxing match or whatever, and they'll, they'll pepper Philippians 4.13. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, that, I don't think that verse means what you think it means. But it's really easy to make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you take away its context. book of Revelation is no different than any other book in the, in the Bible. It's written to a certain group of people at a certain group of time, or at a certain, at a certain time in history going through a very real situation. Remember, it doesn't so much answer the question when and how does Jesus come back, rather it answers, what are we supposed to do in the meantime, before he comes back? How, how are we supposed to act? So, this vision that John gets of this, of this awesome person with, with hair like wool and with a sword coming out of his mouth, and all, if you remember your Old Testament, John is describing almost verbatim what Daniel sees. In Daniel chapter 7, when, when Daniel sees this ancient of days figure, John is saying, I am seeing the same person that Daniel saw. And it's getting real, people. So Jesus appears to John. He says, hey, write what you're about to see. Write it to these seven churches. These are seven real churches. We got a couple of maps up there. Seven real churches from history and real locations throughout the world, throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, they're about. And it's real churches going through real struggles and real situations. He's got a message for each of them. And you'll notice in Revelation, in the whole Bible, really, there's a ton of numbers in the book of Revelation. Specifically in Revelation, you'll see a lot of sevens. you see a lot of twelves. Jews were big into what's called numerology. They were all about the significance of numbers. And seven was, was like the best number because seven symbolized completion. Seven was like, was like God's number because God created the world in seven days, Genesis. So, so seven is like this perfect number of completion. And you'll see all throughout when you're reading Revelation, even, even when you read the Gospel of John, you'll, you'll read through that Gospel and there's, there's seven miracles. There's seven I am statements. And just John is, is obsessed with the number seven because it symbolizes completion. Jesus did a whole lot more than seven miracles, but seven symbolizes fullness, it symbolizes completion. So Jesus is writing to these real seven churches. He has messages for all of them, but he's also writing to the church today, the universal church. The, the universal body of Christ. And he's got a message for us, too. 
Now, Revelation, let's talk about what Revelation is not for a minute. I think we have a slide up there. But Revelation does not, it doesn't exist to answer the question of when does the world end? Is the Antichrist Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? It doesn't answer that question. It doesn't exactly spell out what's the mark of the beast. Is it this? Is it that? It doesn't answer how many antichrists there are. Or bioimplants of the devil. It doesn't answer that. It's not a chronological timeline for the end of the world. I know a lot of times we'll read through that and think, man, from, from chapter 1 to one to the end, we think this is chronological, and it's really not. Because you get to like chapter 6, and the world's already ending, and you're like, man, what happens in the rest of the book? But it's a letter written to seven different churches, kind of on a postal route, as you saw from the map. They were going through real things. They were going through real struggles. Does it sound familiar? And you look at the world today, and this, this world is messed up. You look at the church today, and the church is messed up. Don't divorce it from the context. Now, this first letter, he's going to write to um, Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, it's the first place you'd come to on the map if you're leaving Patmos where John is. And Ephesus is like the, was the cultural and the commercial center of Asia Minor. Had the temple of Artemis there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was this ugly fertility goddess. I mean, I didn't put a picture up there. Just She's, she's ugly. Uh, Ephesus had about a maximum population of a third of a million people. It had a theater that could hold 25,000 people. And it's estimated, or... Uh, it was established in, uh, in the 50s by, by Paul, uh, Priscilla, and Aquila. Timothy spent some time there. Later, John spent some time there. And here's all you need to know about Ephesus, really. They had it all. They didn't need anything. They lived in affluence. They, they wanted for nothing. Does that sound familiar? Go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you'd read earlier, uh, Jesus explains that, that the seven stars are angels and the, and the lampstands represent the churches. So it says, uh, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So, stars are angels. Lampstands are the churches. <laughs> Jesus is basically saying, look, here I am. I'm the one holds the angels in my hands. I've got them. And I walk among the churches and I see what's going on. There's nothing that escapes my, my, my sight. I, I know the problems that the church has. I, I know the strengths that the church has. I know what you're doing well. And I know what, what you're not doing at all and where you need to repent or there's going to be some problems. He knows all and he sees it all. Nothing surprises him. And he's got a message for them. And it's not just a message for, for Ephesus. It's a message for Hinton, too. <clears throat> and in each of these letters uh, to these seven churches, they, they all look really similar because in all of them, you're going to see uh, the beginning of them. Jesus introduces a different aspect of himself in each letter. He, he lists some, uh, some good things, some positive things about the churches for, for most of them except one church. He lists some things they need to work on, and then he tells, shows them a reward for what's going to happen if, if, if they do repent. So each of these letters are the, are the same, but they're, but they're different. So first off, he gives them a commendation, uh, verses 2 to 3 and 6. He says, Man, you guys work hard. He looks at them, and he sees all these, these people and Man, they always have people signing up to, to do their to do their work, you know, to to cook breakfast, to do transportation, to to go feed the homeless, to, to do all this. They've got everybody signing up. They their people know how to work. All right, their their building doesn't need anything. Lots of deeds, lots of, lots of people coming together and just working hard. And these are people who persevere. They don't let hard times get in the way. They keep going. They don't give up. And these are people who care about their doctrine. They want to make sure their life matches up with what they believe. And so they don't let wolves in with the flock. They, they make sure to, to, to get people out who, who don't believe what they believe and who teach false things and who don't live according to the gospel. They, they make sure that they... Um, the, the, the wrong kind of seed just doesn't get in the church. They, they really shepherd the church well. They're, they're willing to endure hardship. They're, they're not just here when things are good, but, they're, but they're, they come when things are bad. They, they don't quit. They don't give up. You know, these folks are consistently doing stuff for the church. You know, maybe there's all kinds of committees. It's the best looking place in town. It's the cleanest. They got the best VBS. But for all of that, there's something wrong. And you see, in the midst of all of the affluence of their culture and everything that they have, all the work that they put into their ministry, they've fallen out of love with Jesus. They've, uh, they, they, they've kept the, the wolves... Out of, out, out of the sheep pen, but they've forgotten what, the, what their shepherd looks like. They don't, they don't recognize his voice anymore. They've, they've fallen out of love with Jesus. How does that happen? I think it's easier than we think. You ever notice, sometimes, especially 
celebrities, it seems like you'll you'll hear people getting divorced, and it'll, it takes everybody by surprise and breaks everybody's hearts. And like you read the statement that the couple puts out, you know, over time we just we we, we grew individually and we, we we fell out of love with each other. Man, you guys remember falling in love with your spouse? Maybe it's happened a couple times. I don't know, but you remember. When you're first dating somebody special, man, it's awesome. You can't, those first feelings of falling in love, you you can't spend enough time together. It it doesn't matter how much money you spend. You're going to spend every waking second with that person because you love them. You're going to call up your, you know, your third cousin that you haven't spoken to in 10 years just to say, hey, I I met this person and, you know, they're, they're the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's because it's exciting. You tell everybody about it. You have to talk with that person until from the time the sun goes down to the time the sun comes up, and it won't even feel like five minutes have passed because you're in love. Then you get married, and it, it's great at first. Th- things are going so well. You eat dinner together every night. You talk when you get home. It's like, honey, how was your day? It was great. Tell me about yours. Five, ten years later, not talking so much. You know, work's got busy, the, the kids have school, you got to help them with their homework. time you see each other, you know, it's bedtime. And over time, it's really easy to fall out of love with your spouse. And this whole idea of being in love is just kind of a facade anyway. Because love's a choice. You know, love's not a literal hole you trip in. Oh, I fell in love. No, it, it's a choice that you make. I'm going to love this person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself to this person. I'm going to do these things for this person for the rest of my life. But why do people, quote unquote, fall out of love? It's because they don't do what they did at first anymore. And it's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus. It's the very same way. That's why in Scripture, our relationship with the Christ is compared with marriage. When, when you first meet Jesus, you are excited. You're on the moon when when you first come into contact with him and you first realize everything that he did for you and you're baptized and you're, you're part of a youth group or you're part of a, a home group and you're just into the word like crazy. I mean, you'll, you'll read your Bible all the time. You'll get on every kind of Bible reading plan that there is. You'll, you'll set your alarm to make sure you pray at certain times. You'll have an accountability partner maybe. You'll be at Bible study, you'll be at Sunday morning church, you'll, you'll be at the, the potlucks, whatever. And you will tell your co-workers about Jesus just because you're so excited about it. But over time, just like marriage, life can get in the way. And other things kind of take the place of what you did with Jesus. You know, some of us have great relationships with our spouses. But we've fallen out of love with Jesus. We, we've forsaken the love that we had at first. First thing you've got to do is admit it. Because we know if it's us. We, we know if, if we've kind of lost some of the love that we had at first. And then do something about it. You know, people say, oh, I, just, I don't feel close to Jesus anymore. Well, I promise it's not him who's moved. You know, a lot of times, we were talking about this in Sunday school earlier. You know, a lot of times when people say that, you talk to them and it's like, well, tell me, tell me how, you know, what are the things you're doing? Are you praying? No. Are you reading your Bible? No. 
You part of a church? No. Well, I probably wouldn't feel very close to God either. If that's you, admit it. Do something about it. That's what he says to do. It says, if we've lost the love that we've had at first, we repent. And if not, there's consequences. He says he's going to come and he's going to take away the lampstand. What does that mean? Well, different people will tell you different things, but the lampstand represents the church. And basically he's saying, look, if your church doesn't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to pronounce judgment upon your church. And it's interesting that this is before the final judgment. So Jesus is saying, look, if, if you guys don't do something about this, if you don't fix your love problem, there's going to be serious repercussions. But if you do, if, if you do fix what's going on, here's your reward. And this is beautiful. He says, whoever has ears, verse 7, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you remember, we talked about the Old Testament. If you remember in Genesis, God creates the world, he creates animals, he creates mankind. Tells them, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you can't eat from this tree, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's another tree in the garden that they could eat from. It was the tree of life. In fact, all of Scripture is bookended by these two trees. Like, we exist standing in between two trees. A tree over here in Genesis and a tree over here in Revelation. And it's called the tree of life. And after Adam and Eve sinned, there's this passage where where God says, hey, we got to kick them out of here because otherwise they're, they're, they're going to eat from the tree of life and they're going to live forever. Now, what he's talking about, I believe, in, in, that, in that description is Adam and Eve know they're, they're sinful. They, they know sin. Sin has entered the world. And if they eat from this tree of life, they're going to live forever in that state. So we're going to get them out of here. So him kicking them out of the garden is actually an act of mercy because he, God knew that there was going to be a plan. He was going to send Jesus to fix this problem. And he knew there was another tree of life. And you get to the end of Revelation. And you get to where John is describing the new heavens and the new earth. And it says there's a tree of life on each side of the river. And its fruit and its leaves have, have 12 different types of fruit depending on the season. And it's for the healing of the nations. And it's just 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 beautiful passage of God restoring what we messed up in the garden, because we stand in between these two trees, but one day we're going to be able to eat from that tree again. One day, there's not going to be this problem that we see all over our news with racism. Just yesterday, if you if you watched the news, there was a white supremacy demonstration in Virginia and somebody drove a car into a crowd of people and just this mass hysteria all over the color of our skin and one day my Bible tells me that there's going to be every tongue, every tribe, every nation worshiping the same God all united one day <laughs> Revelation isn't so much about what when is Jesus going to come back and how is he going to do it as to what we're supposed to be doing here 
we're going to go through this, this next seven weeks looking at these different churches. And all but two of them have major problems. You know, you've got churches that deal with sexual immorality. You've got churches that deal with uh, emperor worship. You've got churches that that just don't don't care. They're lukewarm. Then you've got good churches that, that actually are, are doing pretty good. Remember, there's seven churches. They were seven real churches. But he's saying this to all of us today because all of our churches struggle with the same things um, that, that these seven churches did. So over the next six weeks now, we're going to get into this. We're going to look at these letters, and we're going to dig in. I encourage you to read through the book of Revelation. Don't be scared of it. Don't be afraid to admit that you don't know what's going on, because none of us know exactly what's going on. You know, some of it's clear. Some of it you're going to shake your head at, and I don't, I don't know, God, I've got to ask that question when I get to heaven. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that's meaning. But don't read it so much as a timeline of the end of the world. Read it as, you know, what am I supposed to do until the world ends? And it'll, it'll make a whole lot more sense. Let's pray. God, help us to fall back in love with you. Because it's really easy to, 